This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have two guests on from Tech Against Terrorism. We have Deba Shadnia and Arthur Bradley, and I'm so excited to have them on the show. They're going to be talking about a new report that's out titled The Threat of Terrorist and Violent Extremist Operated Websites. It's really interesting. They've done some great long-term research on this and have some really interesting findings, as well as policy suggestions on a very, very important topic that we'll all be dealing with for a long time, I have a feeling. (laughs) But um, so yeah, I want to just let everyone know that Deba and Arthur both, as I said, work at Tech Against Terrorism. Deba is an OSINT analyst there, and Bradley is a senior OSINT analyst. So first of all, welcome to the show to both of you. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. To start off with, why don't you give our listeners an idea of the background of this study? So kind of the time periods you were looking at, the types of methods you used, and why this topic is so important. Uh, Sure, I think I can kick us off. Uh, And then Arthur, feel free to kind of, um, you know, fill in any gaps that I may have forgotten. But um, effectively, to kind of introduce this topic appropriately, I think it's, um, I think it's important to situate the monitoring and the kind of uh, OSIN investigations that we were doing into the use of websites by terrorists and violent extremists within the broader landscape of the kind of work we do at Tech Against Terrorism to begin with. Um, Really, Arthur and I's job is to kind of understand the different ways that terrorists and violent extremists from across the ideological spectrum are using the internet. Um, to what extent are they using different technologies? What are the adversarial shifts in their behavior? It's a really granular approach that we take to understanding terrorist exploitation of the internet. Um, and you know, within, within that kind of wider monitoring of online spaces, uh, you know, inevitably comes um, the specialization of uh, monitoring specific types of uh, platforms and um, kind of areas of the internet that are being exploited more so than others. Um, so to kind of give your listeners a, a little bit of context, uh, the, the kind of initial investigation into the use of terrorist operated websites began about a year ago. So, um, you know, we say that our, our database includes data from January 2021, but um, it was really around that time that, that our team first started identifying a kind of um, a, a, a kind of uniformed rise in the use of um, uh, domains registered by um, terrorist entities or suspected terrorists and their supporters and violent extremists. Um, and the more we identified the use of these websites, the more we started noting down, okay, you know, you know, what domains are they uh, exactly? Um, where are they being hosted? What is the um, additional registrar information or who is data that we can, we can provide? How are these websites being used as well? So the more we started identifying 
these websites being used, the more we kind of sensed a pattern of, um, you know, okay, this seems to be a behavioral shift that is worth us, um, you know, monitoring in a bit more of a precise way. Um, and that's how we kind of, uh, that's how we created our, our TOW tracker um, initially. Uh, in terms of the methods that we used, again, it's a kind of combination of different uh, open source intelligence methods, all of which are completely passive. Um, meaning, you know, we don't engage with terrorists or violent extremists. We don't pretend to be supporters or members. It's all completely um, neutral and detached. Um, and it's a really kind of broad range of different methods that we use in order to get the fullest picture possible. So it would be a combination of kind of keyword searches and advanced um, search engine queries, as well as um, you know, monitoring of the spaces that we were already in to look for evidence of um, website URLs being shared um, and kind of any other additional outlinks or URLs that would point to this migration. And Arthur, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I think, I mean, that's a brilliant kind of summary of, of the report, I guess, on the kind of why important um, point. I mean, f first of all, you know, we're, we're not claiming that terrorist operated websites, violent extremist operated websites are a new issue, but definitely that they're one that's um, overlooked, particularly in like policy debates. Um, but this report, you know, as Deba said, is uh, really the product of our like broader work at TAT, you know, and the kind of one of the key things that the OSINT team does is disrupt terrorist use of the internet. So, um, you know, in our daily monitoring, we're essentially through something particularly called the TCAP, so the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform, which essentially is our alerting service for tech companies. Um, so we're picking up URLs to terrorist content across the internet um, on a daily basis, um, and essentially getting those URLs shut down. And one of the things that we particularly noticed in collecting all of those URLs is that, you know, terrorist operated domains or websites are coming up a lot more often. Um, and they were the ones that had more longevity. You know, we can't much, much more complicated to alert a terrorist operated domain through, through the TCAP to the infrastructure provider than it is to a tech platform. So that's what I would say, you know, why is it important? It's because these are often sites that have, have more longevity than the accounts on the mainstream platforms. And on that point, to kind of backtrack a little bit for listeners that might not have a lot of knowledge of terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet and specifically websites, um, why websites in particular? Is there something that it provides them with that are better or more optimal than, say, social media or messaging apps? Yeah, so, I mean, I would say that... Um... These websites that, that we've picked up in this report, I think in large part is kind of a result of adversarial shift. So, of course, with the advent of social media, you know, in, in the early noughties, we saw kind of a big migration of terrorists from those websites onto these social media platforms, because that's really the place where they you know, got the greatest chances of reaching a wide audience and recruiting. Um, as over the past you know decade or so tech platforms have made improvements in in their moderation of terrorist content those platforms you know they still have a long way to go but it's a much more hostile uh, environment for for groups particularly well-known designated terrorist organizations like isis to operate um, without detection so they're having to be quite creative uh, in getting around content moderation which essentially has um, the side effect of making their content 
more difficult to find, um, particularly for like potential recruits. So our kind of hypothesis with this report is that these terrorist operated websites are being used to supplement their accounts on 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 the big social media platforms, but also on the smaller platforms, which really is where terrorists are congregating the most now. Um, you know, and and in congregating on those smaller platforms, they're they're struggling to reach as wide an audience as they would do um, on the larger platforms. So these terrorist websites essentially are serving a function of being a kind of e- relatively easy to discover um, space on the surface web. So it can be found um, through kind of a, a, a search engine search, for example, which you wouldn't be able to find like a deep web Telegram channel, for example. In the report, you mentioned that during the time period of the study that there were about or even over 198 websites operating that are by terrorist or violent extremist actors. I was wondering if we could discuss this a bit and maybe break down the types of groups or ideologies that we see associated with these sites. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, so that number, the 198 websites, I think there are a few things to point out, first of all. Um, that number is growing by the day uh, fairly rapidly. Um, I think, you know, uh, you know, our, our team is um, relatively small and juggling about a million different projects at the same time. But had we, you know, you know, if we had a kind of um, dedicated team or even one um, kind of full time analyst looking at this topic for, you know, eight to nine hours a day, that, I think that that number would would increase significantly. So um, there is a there is a kind of um, point to be made in terms of you know our findings are constrained by capacity and uh, need to kind of juggle other priorities as well. Uh, and I have no doubt that we have barely scratched the surface of how many of these websites are actually operating and and live uh, at the moment. Um, but but kind of also on that topic of of kind of live websites, the way that we built our tracker was really just a kind of database. Um, a database of all of the domains that we were finding that we were able to say with a significant, you know, a relatively high degree of confidence were either um, administered by members uh, or indeed supporters of a designated terrorist organization uh, or a, a violent extremist entity that kind of promoted um, real world violence and posed a significant threat to society. So. Um, you know, with with that database, we would then, uh, after you know, however long would pass, basically go through and try and identify, okay, how many of these domains remained live uh, at the time of writing the report, um, and that and that figure, that statistic changes quite a lot because, um, you know, what we f- what we often found, and it's again, I should say that this um, this you know, adversarial shift towards the use of these websites is not just specific to one type of ideological grouping. It's not just favored by the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. It's not just favored by the far right, but it's, you know, entities and actors across a really wide array of different ideological leanings. Um, But, you know, these actors would exhibit very similar types of behavior when it came to the use of these websites in that, um, you know, say they registered a domain and for whatever reason, whether it be disruption that um, we were able to facilitate or facilitated by others, um, say the domain was disrupted, i.e. taken down or, um, you know, deleted uh, by the registrar, for example. Um, in many cases, we would find that the domain would resurface 
days or weeks later with a very, very similar domain name, but a kind of a different top level domain name. So it would change from a .com to a .io or a .info. And this would be a repeated pattern of behavior that we would see. So, so again, that number, the, the nearly 200 websites that we have been tracking um, is a combination of you know, websites that uh, have created new iterations of themselves, as well as a mix of some websites that have been um, kind of inactive due to disruption as well. Um, but we try, to, we try to kind of group it based on ideological uh, leanings and um, this is something that I kind of went back and forth on for a long time when we were first drafting the report, um, specifically looking at the use of these websites by violent Islamists. Um, it, I was really torn on whether or not we differentiate between different variations or different types of violent Islamist ideologies and not just lumping them into one because there is, there is huge analytical um, benefits in, in separating um, you know, each group, each uh, ideological background, um, because, you know, we don't we don't want to we don't want to uh, make out as if these actors all have the same uh, motivations or ambitions and goals. And so um, from my perspective, uh, splitting up the violent Islamist websites amongst the uh, Sunni Islamists or Sunni violent Islamists and Shia violent Islamists was really done as a means of saying, okay, we realize that these classifications are not perfect by any means. However, there, there had to be a little bit more detail to understanding um, the types of actors that were associated with these domains and the extent to which they were being used as well. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't claim to have a kind of perfect answer for how we classify these websites because they are an inherently really difficult thing to be able to um, identify and follow. But um, we kind of we 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 went with the groupings that we thought was most appropriate for the data set that we had really. I actually think you did a fantastic job on that because reading the report and doing my own research, I think all of us struggle with classifications and definitions of certain things as well. And, and as we know, there can be so many different ways of going about it, but I really liked how you broke it down um, because Thank it really you. does, yeah, it really does provide you with a, a better way of looking at it versus just grouping far right, say, and then jihadists or violent Islamists. Um, yes. You know, it, the breakdown really showed even more than um, I think would have been done if it was done otherwise. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's uh, yeah, that's very kind of you to say. And, um, you know, there's always space for improvement. I have no doubt that in the ne next project that um, the Tech Against Terrorism kind of works on or the next report that we publish on this topic that we would have uh, kind of more room for further exploration. But um, you know, one of the one of the things that I think is important to flag about this report is that we really were trying to kind of um, introduce this topic to to the public in as succinct way as we could. Our initial draft was about twice as long as what we ended up publishing. Um, there was so much for us to touch on, and so we had to be really kind of um, strict about. Uh, the detail to which we went in, what we included and what we didn't, because it would have just been overwhelming to dump 60 pages on this, to on this topic um, into, into the kind of ether and hope that it would be digested. So we thought 
from a starting point, better to start with something that is um, more accessible and provides a kind of introduction to the topic without getting super into the weeds so that, you know, when, when we do next produce work on this, we can um, present it with, with more specificity. And another kind of general question for audience members that might be coming from a different background of research or interests, um, why or do we see a primary reason for using websites versus say like a social media or messaging sites? Um, is there a stronger reason that we see the websites versus that or is it kind of a mixed bag depending on the different ideologies or ideological leanings? So, I mean, I, I would say that you, you can think of, I mean, well, so first of all, terrorist, terrorist websites kind of serve a, a really broad variety of purposes and they can really kind of differ in terms of what they're used for. But, you know, most often the, the kind of websites that are affiliated with a specific organization, you can kind of think of it like a company website so it's you know basically all of the key information that you would want to know about that entity um like a company will probably be available there you know easily nav navigatable all in one place um and also curated um so i think that in terms of kind of the reason for the website you know i was talking earlier about them being on the surface web but it's also really a place that can be curated and look quite professional depending on how kind of advanced their developing skills are in terms of web design um yeah, it's, you know, it's a way of, of basically having a directory of all of this different information um, relating to the group all in one place. Um, that might be an archive of propaganda. It might be, um, you know, a fundraising link, for example. It might also be kind of points of contact and links into kind of more um, kind of deep web parts of the internet where they might be able to recruit more privately with the group. Um, but as I say, I think the emphasis in terms of the why is really the curation and, and the ability to have all of this information in one place um, without all of these kind of sophisticated content moderation avoidance tactics that they often use on social media platforms. Also to, to add to that, if I may, um, we kind of, we tried to do some, uh, or rather we, we conducted analysis on the types of features that a sample set of, uh, I think it was 16 or 17 of these websites um, the, the types of, you know, um, features that they provided. Um, so whether it be, you know, do they allow for an archive of content? Do they allow for um, online users or visitors of the website to communicate? Do they allow for fundraising? And we saw that, you know, on, across the whole, um, looking at the various breakdowns of, of, of ideological leanings, a lot of these websites exist you know, exhibited similar features um, and really provided those kind of very um, significant tools for these actors and their supporter networks to, to um, benefit from, essentially. And then I think also, you know, another point on this is that, and I can't remember whether we included some of these kind of, you could describe them more as platforms um, in the data set for this report, but, you know, I say that they, you know they're often curated and more kind of explicitly affiliated with that organization there are also a lot of websites which you could see as being much more veiled um, and this can be where you know there's a bit of an overlap between terrorist propaganda and disinformation so you know al-shabaab for example is a good example um, lots of kind of closely affiliated and more loosely affiliated pro-al-shabaab 
um, ostensibly news websites, which, you know, to the untrained eye probably just look like kind of Somali or East African news related um, websites, but are actually, you know, essentially pushing out propaganda affiliated with that organization. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, there are also um, domains or websites, which you can probably characterize more as a platform. Um, so for example, in our, we, we released a short kind of Q1, Q2 trends um, last year in, in around June, and one of the entries in that one was on cloud platforms. And these are essentially, you know, big archives of content using open source software. So one of the, the key ones that we see a lot is called Nextcloud. You know, it's essentially like a Google Drive, um, which can be accessible on the domain name um, system. Um, and, you know, these a host a big archive of content but also some of them kind of allow a bit of user interaction so you know supporters can upload content and then share that content via urls um and then the third kind of example of this i'd say is you know terrorist operated pace sites so obviously just paste it um is is a legitimate pace site but we have seen examples of um very similar looking pace sites which which seem very likely to be run by IS and Al-Qaeda respectively based on the volume of, of content on there and the lack of content on there that's not produced by those organizations. And Arthur, you alluded to it slightly earlier in the talk, but I wanted to shift the discussion towards like what can be done, policy recommendations, how do we tackle this? Um, because as we know, there's been a lot of work within the tech industry, government, law enforcement, et cetera, to remove and disrupt content from terrorist and violent extremist actors online. Um, so we're seeing in recent years this shift more towards websites for the different reasons that the websites offer. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit and how easily have some of these websites, how easily accessible are they, um, as well as um, what does it, the shift mean towards websites versus heavier on the messaging and social media platforms? So uh, I, I can go first. Um, I'd say, well, a lot of these websites generally, you know, are fairly easy to find. Um, so as I said earlier, you know, generally they're indexed by search engines. Um, and a lot of them, not all of them, have intuitive kind of domain names. Um, so if, if you know what you're looking for, um, they're fa fairly easy to find. Um, I'm not sure on the exact number, but only a small minority of the sites that we included in the data set were in any way password protected. So they're, you know, easily accessible to the general public. Um, all you need to know is either domain or, or kind of be able to search in, in the relevant language for the group or content um, in question. Um, I think key caveat here is that um, it's unlikely a lot of these sites could be stumbled across, um, you know, unless it was by an individual that was specifically seeking out the content. So, you know, when we were looking for these websites, you know, we have a good knowledge of, um, you know, IS affiliated media entities, for example, um, that we could search for in order to find those websites. So, you know, I guess it's the, the way of putting it is that they're probably accessed more by kind of self-selecting um, individuals than than by the general public and this of course is unlike on social media so you know fairly well documented is kind of twitter hashtag hashtag campaign campaigns you know hijacking um trending topics on twitter that's not really a thing that they can do on these websites um so that is a downside um and then also you know some are definitely much more difficult to find so um you know we did semi-occasionally come across dark web addresses or also kind of domains that are using 
decentralized. So, so for example, the interplanetary file system or IPFS, um, and those kind of have very long domain names that generally won't come up in Google search engine results. Um, so for those one, it was more a case of, of picking up those domains in the kind of core terrorist channels that we're monitoring uh, in our day-to-day -day work. To, to build on what Arthur was saying, actually, I guess before I, I kind of elaborate, there's one thing that I wanted to raise that I think is a really um, important point to flag and one that I'm worried I will forget, so I'm going to say it now. Um, with all of our work that goes into identifying the use of these websites and, you know, their creations and how they're being used and the extent to which their, you know, website infrastructure is being exploited, um, one thing that we also had to kind of internally grapple with was the possibility that some of the websites in question, particularly the ones that have been online and kind of stable for a relatively long period of time, um, you know, one thing that we have to kind of um, consider is that, uh, you know, these websites could could in fact be um, administered or run or in some way managed by uh, intelligence services that are looking to essentially extract um, information uh, about these these actors, these entities. Um, so effectively, kind of wondering to what extent some of these websites may or may not be honey traps. Um, this is not something that we, you know, we have any kind of uh, inside knowledge to. Um, we have to operate on the assumption that all of these websites are legitimately run by the entities or actors that they claim to represent or that they're promoting. Um, but, you know, it, it just goes to show that that's, that's one tiny aspect of, of why dealing with this issue is so complex and can be so convoluted, um, you know, when we're dealing with a kind of global online system that isn't tied to any specific jurisdiction or geography or, or one particular set of laws when we go about trying to you know, recommend policy implementations or changes, whether it be to tech companies or to governments themselves, there are a whole host of different things that we have to consider. Um, and, that, and that is, um, you know, strangely, one of them, um, the kind of potential uh, intelligence benefits that these sites may provide. Um, so I thought that was worth, worth pointing out. Oh, definitely. I think that's a very important thing to point out and a caveat. So looking at this use of websites by terrorists and violent extremists, and also the tech industry, government, law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera, this struggle to remove and disrupt content and terrorist propaganda, et cetera, what does this mean for the larger challenge of taking on terrorist and violent extremist content online? Um, I, I can start with this one. Um, I mean, I think that uh, in essence, it kind of this, this topic in particular kind of underlies some of the, um, uh, the issues that we face as counterterrorism practitioners working in tech altogether, because we're dealing with a whole host of different um, a whole host of different uh, kind of legal and uh, online rules that we have to try and navigate around. Um, but really, in essence, our, our message is one that we kind of, um, you know, try to share as often as we can across a number of different 
partners. Uh, and that is really uh, the benefit and significance of a collaborative approach to um, the removal of terrorist content online. Um, it's something that Tech Against Terrorism has kind of embedded into its mission. Um, this idea that, you know, it's not just um, it's not just tech companies that should be responsible for removing this content. Um, governments should be kind of actively um, kind of providing clear guidelines um, on, on, you know, whether it be designation or a designation of specific actors or individuals or clear guidelines on types of content that is illegal online, um, you know, all the way down to civil society actors that should also be um, rigorously holding um, different uh, sectors and governments to account over, um, you know, freedom of speech and the commitment to human rights. We really believe that this is a problem that will need to be dealt with holistically and uh, in a kind of um, uh, collective manner. Um, so, you know, one thing that we always try and do is urge um, and kind of facilitate uh, cooperation and communication with the tech sector itself. Um, and we're in, a, we're in a great position where we've been able to develop relationships with certain web infrastructure companies um, that we can often pass information to directly when we have enough evidence of their services being abused or exploited by uh, terrorists or violent extremists. Um, so there's no easy answer, unfortunately, uh, as is mostly the case with anything related to uh, terrorist content online or indeed its removal. Um, but there has to be there has to be a kind of more cohesive and efficient approach. Um, because at the moment, what we've had is kind of uh, lots of people looking at this, at this problem set on an individual basis without really fostering any kind of collaborative uh, working practices or um, kind of rigorous spaces for dialogue to be able to discuss this, really. Yeah, and I think I'd, I'd you know, echoing Deba, I'd say that for me, the kind of what this says for the larger challenge is that we really need to bring into policy debates more stakeholders. So a lot of these conversations about this issue focus heavily on the social media platforms. So obviously, you know, Facebook, Google, Twitter. Um, but what the, the issue of terrorist operated websites essentially is looking more at infrastructure providers, right? So it's registrars, hosts, DDoS services. Um, and obviously the shutdown of Parler, uh, HN, Daily Stormer, they're kind of Know, high profile examples of this kind of entering the public debate um but i think you know as i say th those kind of companies i think should be brought into the conversation a lot more um and i think the second point as deba has already kind of alluded to is uh the difficulties with jurisdictional gaps in our experience of you know trying to disrupt these websites um the threshold for removal by infrastructure providers uh, is often much higher than mainstream social media and um, you know for good reason um, and they, they often require a legal basis. And, and then secondly, um, registrars are often more interested in who is running the site um, rather than the content on the site. So from our point of view, that means, you know, there's much more evidence and work uh, required uh, to put in to kind of submit that kind of takedown request because it requires, you know, more of an in investigation into, you know, the likelihood of who's running the site. And then thirdly, you know, designation, as Deva said, um, a lot of these uh, infrastructure providers, social media companies as well, 
Um, you know, it's not for them to be adjudicating on what content should and shouldn't be online, really. It should be to democratically elected governments. Um, and, you know, in our view, designation is kind of one of the best tools to provide that clarity to, to governments, um, particularly when, you know, we're talking about websites where the threshold for removal is often much higher. So my next question might be opening a can of worms, and if you do not want to touch it, just let me know. But do you see a difference between working with stakeholders and partners um, outside of the U.S. versus the U.S.? Because I know our laws with freedom of speech and et cetera, et cetera, does sometimes influence or affect this whole topic um, and the politics of it. So that was one of the questions I had, and a lot of the bigger industries, a lot of the companies do reside here in the States. So I kind of always think about that in research. I'm happy to, I'm happy to kind of give it a go. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that there is a kind of um, a, a difference in, uh, in attitude of, of stakeholders based on geography, but um, at least it's certainly not something that I have ever um, necessarily come across or identified as a particularly um, strong characteristic. I'd say that it's more likely to for for relationships to be shaped more on the types of stakeholders that we're working with. So if we're looking at kind of tech companies in particular, um, you know, some tech companies uh, are more likely to be more invested in particular protections than others because of the um, natural position that they may have as a, let's say, messaging platform or encrypted email service provider. Um, so it's less, you know, I'd say that it's less based on kind of whether or not a stakeholder is based in the US and the provisions or the kind of um, legal parameters that that may uh, provide. I think it's more to do with, you know, um, what kind of service are these uh, tech companies providing, whether it be, in, you know, if we're talking about tech companies. Um, what, what kind of service are they providing? What kind of values do they hold as well? Because I think that um, it's very easy for us to see the tech sector as a kind of homogenous lump of, of companies, but it's incredibly broad. And um, tech companies are all quite specific in the values that they have. Uh, when I say values, I mean kind of, um, you know, values that they're that they believe their product um, uh, kind of uh, exhibits. So um, certain platforms will have certain affiliations to certain ideals more so than others. And I think from our perspective as practitioners and as an NGO who is, uh, whose mission is you know, built on trying to work with the tech sector, particularly small tech companies, um, our role is to really try and understand that nuance and to try and provide support and help where we can and uh, particularly, you know, where it is most needed as well. Another question I had when listening to your talk about the different partners and in industries working together, etc., um, what about researchers? Because I know a lot of us in the field um, have different ways of dealing with our research online of extremist and terrorist groups use of the online world let's put it that way so what type of recommendations do you offer 
researchers, because I know a lot of people listen to this show. So I feel like this is a really good platform to have this discussion. And especially as a researcher myself, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I'm, I'm happy to provide some and then uh, Arthur, please do jump in if I've forgotten anything, um, which I'm sure I will do at some point. Um, you know, I can't I can't claim to be, um, you know, in a in a position to, to provide super comprehensive advice to researchers. Um, again, the position that Arthur and I are coming from are as practitioners. So whilst research is inevitably a significant part of our role and what we do here at Tech Against Terrorism, our ultimate goal, you know, our, our, our objectives and our job really is to help facilitate the removal of this content. Um, and so the research that we do is really as a, it's, you know, it's done as a means to be able to facilitate that, uh, that kind of final um, objective. Um, but there are a couple of things that I think I would probably recommend to any researchers that are, that are listening to this episode and wondering how best they can um, kind of uh, help mitigate from the threats that terrorists and violent extremist actors pose. Um, I suppose the answer is on a few different levels. Um, first and foremost, um, from just a basic positionality, having really good operational security is something that uh, you can never underestimate. Um, I'm sure I don't need to kind of go into detail on what that entails. I'm sure that your researchers are well equipped to understanding what that means but um that really is the kind of bread and butter of of being in a safe enough position to be able to um you know grapple with this topic to begin with um and beyond that uh, beyond the basic it's really um you know one thing that i would recommend is is trying to see whether there are um collectives or consortiums that uh, researchers are able to join in order to not just share their knowledge with others, but also um, try and identify spaces that may be able to help facilitate that research into tangible outcomes. Um, and I'm gonna take this particular point to uh, promote the Accelerationism Research Consortium, which I'm extremely proud to be a part of. Um, it's effectively an initiative aimed at fostering collaboration between researchers, uh, practitioners and journalists uh, in order to identify and you know, mitigate the threat posed by militant accelerationism. Um, and one thing that the, the ARC, the Accelerationism Research Consortium is trying to do is um, you know, really facilitate the research that we uh, publish into tangible outcomes. So whether it be trying to work with tech companies in helping to shape their policy, whether it be uh, you know, teaching local journalists across the world how, how best to report on this topic, um, trying, to, trying to kind of formulate research into something that we can turn into achievable outcomes, I think is really important. Um, but it, again, it's because of the fact that ARC exists and, you know, provides a, um, a platform for researchers to first be able to engage with one another uh, and be able to discuss research and research methods, but then to be able to turn it potentially into something that could be used by others, I think is a really, really uh, brilliant resource. So um, those would be the two, I, again, very, very basic pieces of advice and potentially not that helpful to your listeners. So I apologize. 
Um, I'm not sure if I'm missing anything and Arthur wants to jump in though. Yeah, I mean, kind of two thoughts kind of following on from what Deba was saying. It's first is, you know, pretty pretty basic, but a lot of a lot of platforms that we work with, you know, one of the, the key functions that they have in terms of tackling this kind of content is user reporting. Um, and I think that researchers, you know, really have a key role to play there. You know, particularly researchers who are joining these kind of clandestine terrorist group chats, they might be the only person in the group that's likely to want to report it. So, you know, report stuff when you see it, archive it and get what you need for it, but then report it. Um, you know, tech against terrorism, you know, as a kind of public private partnership, we work across um, academia, tech and with government, you know, we're happy to facilitate um, or provide guidance on how to report this kind of stuff. Um, and then the second point, you know, again, I think for a lot of people, this isn't going to be new, but it's probably worth emphasizing also that a lot of terrorists and violent extremists do read uh, research um, and the kind of commentary that the research community is putting out. Um, so from my perspective, you know, a real key priority um, for us at Tech Against Terrorism um, is, you know, to be mindful of this um, and not to like unintentionally kind of feed narratives or, or promote material of terrorists without any kind of critical analysis i know you know is for example has has cited research in, in its own for its own kind of propaganda purposes so um and then also final point this is a more kind of tangible um specific thing um i mentioned at the start our, our terrorist content analytics platform or tcap so in a nutshell you know as i said it's a it's a kind of reporting system we we identify uh, and report terrorist content as it's released um on the internet focusing on the kind of core groups of, of terrorist messaging um and that's you know content produced by designated islamists and designated far-right organizations um at the moment all of that content's being reported by us in-house um but we are looking to open up um in the near future to kind of trusted flaggers um so you know back to my first point about reporting stuff when you see it you know if you're a researcher and you'd be interested in becoming a trusted flagger and kind of helping um, boost the reach of the TCAP and do reach out to us as well. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the Loopcast. This has been really an interesting talk and we will definitely post the report, the threat of terrorist and violent extremist operated websites with this talk. So if you want to do a much deeper dive, I highly recommend listeners actually read the report along with the other wonderful research and work that you do at Tech Against Terrorism. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Diva and Arthur. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, likewise. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.